podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. Okay, so today... I am going to be continuing our series on money, on Jesus and money, and I'm going to be giving a talk, so to speak, with a little bit of preaching at the end on a theology of wealth. And this is not something, at at first I actually told Pastor Jada, I was like, yeah, I think I kind of want to speak on that. And then I started reading what Jesus says about the rich and about money, and I was like, man, maybe I should hand this off to someone else. Maybe I, maybe I jumped at the wrong thing, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, as you know, we had our family talk and we, we did a little bit of a survey and there was an overwhelming response asking for teaching on money. It's something that we, we actively exhort toward generosity weekly, but very infrequently do we talk about the nuts and bolts of stewardship and of giving and a theology of wealth, of what, it, what is it to have and to be faithful what we, with what we have as we attempt to follow Jesus well. And so we've dedicated from now until the beginning of Advent for us to preach on all facets of money. And Tom Jennings did a wonderful job the last couple of weeks explaining a Christian worldview around the area of poverty and some of the, from a little bit more of a systemic perspective. And really in the Bible, there is the systemic approach and there is the approach of speaking directly to the individual about what we do with our money. The Bible, I think there's over 2,100 verses that speak about money, wealth, or possessions. And it speaks about them from the perspective of the underdog, from the perspective of the poor. There are verses from the perspective of the wealthy. There are perspectives of truth speaking to power. And there are perspectives of power speaking to individuals. So it is all there. But one of the difficulties in speaking on money is that there isn't a single coherent message from Genesis to Revelation on money. There are streams and things that are consistent, of course, because we serve a God who does not change. But the nature of the revelation in Scripture and the way it works, there are things in the Old Testament that might seem to be at odds with some of the things that Jesus says in the New Testament. So what I'm going to do here to begin with is ask us a couple of framing questions. And these are the questions I want us to have in our mind as I'm speaking. I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about the Old Testament, but we're going to spend the majority of our time right smack dab in the middle of the book of Luke today. So I, I'm going to speak on four different passages from the middle of Luke where Jesus is talking about money in, in various capacities. And then at the end, we're going to pull it all together as we come to the table and receive the gifts of God for our sustenance. All right, so I have a couple of questions here. Denise, I want to, well, I want to give us a definition or something to frame this whole talk here right up at the beginning. So money, what is money? What is the purpose of wealth and possessions? So this is not an economic definition, but this is a a Christian, so to speak, definition. Money is a tool that is purposed to serve the ultimate purposes of God. Well, that's wonderful, which is to facilitate communion with him and one another. So if we don't understand this, 
then we're gonna have a really hard time with some of the things that Jesus says about money. So Denise, keep that up there for just, keep it up there for just a second. I see a handful of people writing down. There's gonna be a bunch of slides today. I usually don't do that, but I thought I'm gonna give myself every advantage. <laughs> so, so however we can do this, I'm gonna try. Uh, money is a tool that is purposed to serve and the ultimate purpose of, purposes of God, which is to facilitate communion with him and one another. Okay, so then I have three questions that I'd like to frame the entirety of this morning. The first question is, what does God intend our relationship with money to look like? What does God intend our relationship with money to look like? Number two, how does the way that we think about money differ from those who are not following Jesus? Okay, so think about this throughout everything this morning because I'm tempted to say that both for myself and possibly for many of you, that there might not be as much of a difference as there should be. The third question as ones in this place, speaking very specifically to us who are in Antioch Church this morning, who have varying levels of wealth by global standards, how does our faithfulness to Jesus impact our wealth? How does our faithfulness to Jesus impact our wealth? Which of course presupposes that it should, can we all agree on that? That, that our following Jesus should impact the way that we steward, the way that we give, the way that we view money, wealth, poverty, the poor, all of the above. So a couple of things here. Uh, yeah, keep, keep that up just as long as possible, Denise. All the slides today, because there's a lot of people writing. Sorry, I've said, I've said that now. I trust that the responsibility is handed over to you. So there is what, what many scholars would say a progressive revelation of many things in scripture that, that one of the things that we know about God is that he doesn't change, but that he meets us where we are at and brings us along closer to the place that we are destined, the place that we will eventually be in the eschaton. So what we know to be true in the end we try and bring into the earth now. And that is true with all varieties of things. That is true with spiritual things. It is true with physical things. It is true with all of the things that touch our lives, that what we are trying to do as Christians is to see ahead Christ's purposes for the future and to draw them into the present. And as we review the Old Testament, we will see that there are certain things that they believe that then Jesus comes along. And there's a number of things where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but then he revisions those statements, right? So in the Pentateuch, we see an inherent goodness of wealth. And generally speaking, these are gonna be generalities. We don't have time to preach on all 2,100 verses. Amen? <laughs> we don't have time. Maybe you have time. I don't have time. I'm a little, I'll be a little too hungry. But that we see, generally speaking, in the Old Testament, that there is an inherent goodness of wealth because it plays the role of being a sign of God's blessing on his people for them to bless the nations of the earth. So wealth in the Old Testament is typified as a sign that it is similar to the, the elements here, that it is a sign that is pointing to something greater and beyond itself. So wealth oftentimes, particularly in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, the earliest period, that is the view of wealth. Particularly in the law as well, 
there we already begin to see restrictions placed on accumulation by individuals in order for them to be reminded of their dependence. So this is one of the things we see over and over and over again in the Old Testament and in our own lives, if we're honest. We see the ebbs and the flows, the cycles, the ups and the downs of following Jesus. We see the mountaintops, we see the valleys, and we see this in the Old Testament primarily with the entire nation of Israel. And we see that when they are following God, they tend to do well materially. And when they are not, they tend to struggle materially. When they fall into idolatry, there is a giving over, generally speaking, of finances and things, oftentimes to actually create literal idols. And then they struggle materially. So there are these ebbs and flows that we see throughout the historical books in the Old Testament. And then we make our way to the prophets. And the prophets have a very unique message that Jesus seems to reiterate throughout the New Testament. And the prophets are primarily concerned with condemning economic injustice. And economic sins in the prophets were always tied to idolatry and to their money, possessions, wealth in some way, shape, or form. So hear that. We need to hear that. That injustice is not just something that is spiritual, that it's not just something that is out there, but it is something that we all play a role in either perpetuating or healing with the way that we live our lives materially, okay? So then I'm just gonna sum up an overall quote-unquote Old Testament theology of wealth. So I'm gonna sum up what is probably close to a thousand pages in your Bible in about 90 seconds. You guys ready for this? Material wealth was often a sign of God's work pointing to something beyond itself, which I've said. So what is it a sign of? And I've kind of consolidated these into three things. Number one, it's a sign of God's abundance and ability to provide. So this is one of the things that we see with the man in the, in the wilderness. We see that Israel's well-being is not dependent upon their ability to create goods and services in the wilderness, that their well-being is solely dependent on God's provision coming from the heavens and coming from ravens. The second thing is it is a sign of God's generosity, that he is not miserly and does not avoid extravagance. This is one of the things we're going to talk about when we get into the book of Luke, is that Jesus is often very, very hard on the wealthy and he's very hard on the rich. But it is ironic that Jesus tends to show up at these extravagant parties and dinners very frequently. And we're going to talk in just a minute about what to do with that. But one thing we know for certain is that God is not miserly, that he is the God of abundance and generosity, that there is no lack or limit in God. And this is one of the things that Thomas said over and over again the last couple of weeks. And then lastly, the third thing, it is a sign of the end of the eschaton, of the future, when all of God's people will share in his abundance with pure enjoyment and no injustice. It's a, it's a recall of God's promise and call to Abraham to be a blessing for all of the nations of the earth. So material wealth in the Old Testament is often a sign of these three things, that God can, God wants to, and one day God will fully provide for his people. Amen? 
All right, so that's a theology of wealth in the Old Testament. That probably should have been a six-month series, but we don't have time for that. All right, so the New Testament. We're gonna move on to the New Testament. So generally speaking, I, I know I'm saying that, but, but if you're anything like me, everything I say, you're gonna go, but what about? So that's why I'm prefacing so much, that with generally speaking, because there are all kinds of exceptions that are replete throughout scripture. Generally speaking, the Old Testament carry, or the New Testament carries the Old Testament perspective with one major exception that wealth is never promised or guaranteed as a reward for obedience, hard work, or perseverance in the faith, okay? In the New Testament, it generally carries the view of the Old Testament, particularly with injustice and caring for the poor and caring for widows and orphans, but there is never, wealth is never promised or guaranteed as a reward for obedience, hard work, or perseverance. Material wealth is continually contrasted with spiritual riches, or as in one of the passages we're gonna read today, being rich toward God, or storing up our treasures in heaven. All the different gospel and New Testament writers say it different ways, but there is this repetitive contrast of material wealth with spiritual riches throughout the New Testament. So in the New Testament, money overwhelmingly moves from a sign that God uses to point to other deeper works to a resource for people to live in the world. Because in the New Testament, what happens? Jesus comes and Jesus is the ultimate sign. As the beginning of Hebrews says, the author of Hebrews says that in the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophets, but now God has spoken finally in his son, Jesus. So that doesn't mean that everything in the Old Testament is negated. It just means that now we read that through the lens of Christ, that Christ is the ultimate sign, that Christ is the ultimate one who points to God's abundance, the ultimate one who points to God's generosity, the ultimate one that shows us what the end will look like, okay? So there is a little bit of a revision of the, the purpose of wealth from the Old Testament to the New Testament. <clears throat> Sorry, I sang a lot this morning and drank a lot of coffee, and those two things just don't serve well for speaking. Um, so I have five biblical conclusions, and then we're going to jump into the text. I promise you we are going to read the Bible today. <laughs> this, this will be proclamation of the gospel, but I am setting this up with some teaching and some framework. So five biblical conclusions that must be held in tension, and these will be on the screen, and Denise is going to be so kind to give you ample time to write them down, even if I blow through them. Number one, material possessions are a good gift from God meant for people to enjoy. Material possessions, this we see right from the beginning. Material possessions are a good gift from God. But the second thing is that material possessions are simultaneously one of the primary means of human hearts turning away from God. And these things have to be held in tension because we are broken and sinful creatures in need of grace every day. So we hold these two things in tension. Jesus speaks a couple of times in the New Testament about God and mammon being rival masters. And we all know the saying, we can only serve one, right? So what is implied there is that money is actually typified as a small g God in the New Testament. We might say a principality or a power that is vying for idolatry in our lives, that it wants our allegiance. 
And we know that it is all too easy to serve money. Does anyone other than me know that to be true in this room? That it is so easy to not realize that we have been blinded to serving Christ. We think we're serving Christ, but really money and economic decisions are guiding our decisions more than our allegiance to Christ. Number two, or number three, sorry, that was one and two together. Following Jesus requires transformation in how one stewards the, the material possessions that he or she has been entrusted with. This is fairly simple, and I think most of us would agree in this place. So I mentioned just a minute ago about Jesus attending these extravagant dinners and parties. And at times in John, where he's turning water into wine, it seems that Jesus is even perpetuating the party. So as I studied and as I read, I came to the conclusion, not completely on my own, so if you like this, I don't, I don't wanna to get too much praise for this, okay? Um, but that extravagance and wealth are accepted by Jesus when they are a means of hospitality to include and honor others. And that is a repetitive theme throughout the New Testament, that extravagance and wealth are accepted when they are a means of hospitality to include and honor other people. And what we see repetitively condemned, and we're literally gonna read some of these passages here in just a minute, is when people just store up for themselves excess with no concern for their neighbor. Number four, there are certain extremes of wealth and poverty which are in and of themselves intolerable. There are certain extremes of wealth and poverty which are in and of themselves intolerable. This is one of the things that Tom was exhorting us the last couple of weeks, that in the manner, in the way that we approach poverty, okay? There are also other ideologies about kingdom wealth that I would want to push back on just a little bit, that there are certain aspects and elements of the prosperity gospel and, and other types of, types of kingdom theologies that take the stance of essentially that God wants and means for us to be wealthy. Now, for one, we have to qualify that because if we mean in the end, well, yet yeah, in the end, none of us will have any lack because we will be with Christ and all of his abundance forever. So in that sense, that is true. But we have to take seriously the fact that Jesus continually warns against the temptations of desiring wealth and desiring to be rich. So we need to be acutely aware that there are certain ends of the spectrum that in and of themselves are intolerable with the gospel. Now, where those places are and how they are defined, for one, I'm not, I don't have time to get into, and it is fairly subjective. So we have to trust the work of the Spirit in us and the community to bring conviction and to bring healing and wholeness in those areas, okay? Number five, last biblical, biblical conclusion is that all that the Bible teaches about material possessions is inextricably bound up with more spiritually, spiritual matters, particularly the state of our hearts. So the simple way of saying this is that it seems like, particularly in the Old Testament, money is always tied to discipleship. Money is always tied to finding out the state of our hearts and the posture of our hearts toward Jesus and toward his people. God cares mostly about how we relate to him and others. We have to remind ourselves, I think, that God doesn't need our money. 
that our money is nothing to God. Like we, we think that God cares about our money. God doesn't care about our money at all. God cares about us and the way that we relate to one another, which means that there are things and guiding principles for how we utilize our money because money changes and alters the way that we relate to people and the way that we relate to him. But the dollar bills in our wallet, the number in our savings account is meaningless to God. I mean, really, what can you give a God who has no need and no lack? Right? And everything that we have comes from his abundance anyways. So it's good for us to be reminded that money in and of itself means nothing. It means nothing. That Jesus, and, and we're going to see here in the book of Luke, throughout the book of Luke, it seems that the, that the gospel writer is constantly reminding us how poor Jesus is and the major players because he's trying to subvert the way that they think about God coming and the Messiah coming to upend the world. And Luke is trying to come across with the message, it's not gonna be anything like you think. Jesus comes to revise the way that we think of power altogether. Jesus comes and flips the power structures on, it, on its head. Jesus doesn't need wealth and power the way that we think about it to change the world. And so that is one of the core messages in, script, in uh, particularly the book of Luke. So a couple of things just to set this up. And I will tell you, we're going to hit four passages today. And you're looking at the clock and you're going, man, we're not going to get very deep. And that's the truth. We're not going to get very deep. But the passages we're going to talk about are things that most of us in the room are going to be very familiar with. And I'm just going to highlight some of the things that Jesus says and some of the principles. So if you're worried about time, don't be, Okay. <laughs> So setting up context for the book of Luke, Luke, for one, emphasizes justice and economics more than the other gospels. He has a theological agenda. He's preaching to a specific, or writing, he's not actually preaching, he's, he's writing to a specific group of people with a purpose. And one of his purposes is to critique the rich, not from the perspective of condemnation, but from the perspective of warning Okay? We need to hear that as people who, relatively speaking, are more on the side of wealth than we are on the side of poverty. That the wealthy aren't condemned, but they are continually warned in Scripture. So some of the, some of the examples of this, just to help connect the dots. From the beginning of Luke, he's contrasting wealthy and poor. So Luke has the extensive birth story of Jesus. He emphasizes the poverty of the manger scene. That's commonplace to us. That wasn't commonplace back then, especially for a Messiah. Have you forgotten how much manure stinks? <laughs> when was the last time you were around livestock? Okay, he is highlighting their neediness and their dependence on the people around them. Mary's Magnificat emphasizes the poor. She has a line in there that he sends the rich away hungry. He's already beginning to subvert the way that we think about money and power. The shepherds are included in the book of Luke. Who's not? The magi or the wise men. The shepherds are the first ones to come. And I read one of the commentators. I just thought this was such a fantastic line. He says that all are invited to the manger, the poor and the rich. But the magi, as we know, didn't get there until much later. Excuse me. They didn't get there till much later because they had such a distance to travel to get to Jesus. The rich have 
they can come to Jesus. We can come to Jesus, but we have much more ground to cover coming to Jesus because of the obstacles of being relatively wealthy. Other passages like the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the thief on the cross, he's not identified as a thief in any of the other, pas- uh, other gospels. So there's just multiple ways where we can see, if we read the book of Luke, that he's contrasting the wealthy and the rich. Luke's mission is to reveal the ways that Jesus upends how the world thinks about power and success versus what those things mean in the kingdom. Multiple times, Jesus' instructions to people include, do not take a purse, do not take a cloak, do not take with you anything extra. Why? Jesus uses money throughout his ministry. He has to. He's living in this earth, and we must live in the economy of this earth without being enslaved to it. But Jesus is changing the world is not dependent on how much money he has. Jesus redefines money and wealth as a means to power, from a means to power, excuse me, to a resource to be used by those who hold it on behalf of others. Okay, so this is the theme. I want to skip, uh, for the sake of time, I want to skip over to our first passage, which is found in Luke chapter 10, Denise. This is a a passage that we are all certainly at least vaguely familiar with. The parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. I am going to read in whole some of the passages today. I'm not going to read the entirety of this one. But one of the things that we need to know, so Jesus tells this parable And he talks about a man who is beaten up on the side of the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And what we know about that journey in particular is a very rigorous journey. And it was a place that thieves would basically jump people that were traveling between. So many scholars believe that the man who is hurt is a thief, is someone, is a robber someone who probably attempted to harm someone else and then was beat up for it. That's what, you know, that that can be supposed rightly. And so he contrasts the responses of the priest and the Levite and then the Samaritan. And he's speaking to people who are in the religious system. So that's one of the reasons he uses a priest and a Levite. But the hero of the story is not the priest, who to the people he was speaking to, they would have assumed if anyone's going to be the hero of anything, it's going to be a priest. But the priest was at fault here for passing by. And the Levite was at fault for passing by. But the Samaritan cleaned him up, took him to a local urgent care, a local hospital, and basically wrote a blank check for him uh, to be healed and to receive treatment. So one of the things we learn from this passage is we see already the book of Luke, he's upending conventional wisdom because even our definitions and Dave Ramsey's definition of stewardship wouldn't really apply here. Like this is someone, we don't know how he got beat up. We don't know him at all. We can't help everybody, right? We can't help everybody. Nobody can help. Bill Gates can't even help everybody. So what is the purpose? What is trying to be communicated here? One of the things is that we can't help everybody, but who are we called to help? Those who come across our path. We're called to help those who come across our path. And I want to challenge us and say something that is difficult, and it's difficult for me. So I don't want to be preaching down to you. I want you to know that this is as convicting for me as it is for you. 
that scripture almost never talks about any of the qualifiers in helping people. Okay? Now this this doesn't mean that we just throw out all wisdom. I want to be really clear. But scripture is overwhelmingly also clear that the people we are called to help most are the people that come across our path. And we don't get to ask the questions. We don't, we don't get to have people fill out surveys for whether they receive our compassion or not, okay? Now, generally speaking, I'm not talking about the American government. I'm not talking about economics. I'm not talking about welfare systems. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about over and over again in the New Testament in particular, we see people being criticized for not helping the people that are nearest them. And Jesus is primarily the one criticizing. So we need to take it seriously. Wealth is something to be used to bless our enemies for God's sake. If I had to sum up the parable of the Good Samaritan, Alcimis, for God's something that we are called to use to bless our enemies for God's sake. It should mess with us a little bit. It's not easy. That's not a hard word. That's, I mean, that's a hard word to me. That's not, and there are all kinds of questions and discerning activities that we have to go through. Let me be clear there. But we can't excuse our way out of helping people because at the end of the day, nobody will meet all of the checks on our checklist. Nobody will be worthy of us helping them. If that's, if that's our goal, is to find someone who is generally in perfect need in all the ways that we think they should be perfectly needy, we're not gonna find anyone and we're gonna miss the call of Jesus. All right, let me move on. (laughs) This next one I'm not gonna read as well. This is, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11, 37 to 42. And and the, the Pharisees called Jesus out for not washing his hands before the meal, right? So Jesus is breaking the quote unquote law, the capital L law here. And they call him on it. Well, actually, they don't call him on it. Jesus notices they're eyeing him and Jesus calls them out. And he says, and he says, you're concerned with the outer, but you're not concerned with the inner. And then there is this verse, uh, which one is, I think it's 42. And we're, I'm not really gonna talk about tithing today. We're gonna talk about that in a couple of weeks. Pastor Jade might hit it some next week. He says, woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a 10th of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So what does Jesus say here? He says, yes, tithe. Yeah, don't, don't stop tithing just at, because now you're being asked to do more, which actually they've always been asked to love their neighbor and even their enemies all the way back into Leviticus and Deuteronomy. This isn't really a new thing. But Jesus comes and gives it a prioritized place in the kingdom. So what are we to do here? Give to God, yes, but why are you giving? The work of the spirit should move us from law-based giving to merciful giving, okay? We might say this like in the Old Testament, there are outer standards for our giving. But in the New Testament, the principle is essentially give all you can. Should I move on? That, that it's fairly clear. And, the, and I'm not just saying give to the church. This isn't just a self-serving thing where we're trying to fundraise. It's, gi- it's give, all, give all you can. 
Give all you can to those who are in need. Give to all kinds of kingdom ventures. Give, give to people who, just to be challenged yourself, give to people who you don't think are deserving of your mercy. Because at the end of the day, that's all of us, right? <clears throat> I'm gonna move on again, but we're actually gonna read this passage, okay? I think we're caught up on time here a little bit. We're gonna talk about the story of the rich fool here. The one that none of us think that we are, but so many of us, including myself, are in the room. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. I am not used to sitting while I speak. I got to stand up. Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, of course, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Okay, so real quick, if you glance up right before this passage, the great irony here is that Jesus has just given a discourse on being concerned with eternal things and not temporal things. So then this guy pipes up and says, yeah, okay, Jesus, but tell my brother to give me my inheritance. Okay, let this sink in. Jesus has just talked about eternal matters and he's like, yeah, but my brother owes me money. Okay, so Jesus replies, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. And then he told him this parable, and this is a hard parable for us. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Why does he have no place to store his crops? Because his barns are already full. Don't let that be lost on you. So then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Aha, a wonderful, um, for, for a capitalist, this is, I mean, it's fantastic. It's genius. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I can store even more. And then I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then... Who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not, and here's this phrase I mentioned in the beginning, rich toward God. Who is not rich toward God? The rich fool appeals to Jesus not for true justice, but for him to get his own way, for Jesus to confirm what he already thinks is true, right? He's revealing right in the beginning that he has no concern for his literal brother, this is not figurative brother, this is literal brother. Right out the gate, he's saying, Jesus, my brother owes me money. Notice the possessive language in this parable. I do not have barns big enough to store my harvest, so I'm gonna tear down my barns and I'm gonna build bigger ones for myself. Jesus is addressing something very acute here and that is greed, that is greed. And this was so convicting to me I think, for one, we would do ourselves well to assume that greed is present in our lives and to assume that greed is crouching at our doors, as it says in Genesis of Cain. That we should take the posture not of, well, I'm not very greedy, but assume that there is at least a measure of greed tugging at your heart. Even if it's not quite in your heart because you are truly righteous and holy, I promise you this culture, if nothing else, wants you to be greedy. 
this culture that we live in, for all of the, there are good things about this culture, but man, we so often fail to see that greed is a devourer, that greed kills, it steals, and not just from us, primarily from the people around us. And we should be as convicted about that as anything. Greed is the assumption that people and things exist for our personal benefit. Greed assumes that all increase in my life is to make my life better, easier, or more secure for the future. Hear that. Greed is the assumption that increase in my life is primarily for me. This is a distinctly American idea. Think about this. That we assume that when a blessing comes our way, that first it is ours. And then of course we'll tithe. Of course. We'll give 10%. But how hard is giving 10% of more money when you're keeping 90? Like think about this. I was pondering this passage and I was contemplating saying this, but I want to say it. If you walked into your boss's office tomorrow and they offered you a a positional raise, so a promotion with a $25,000 a year increase, most of us in the room would be ecstatic. And in the moment, we would accept it, and we would say, oh, thank God you are providing for me. I knew you would. I knew you'd come through. And, and I'm not about to debunk that. I'm not going to say that, that God doesn't provide for us in that way. But how would our response change if we knew that we were supposed to take it, yet we knew that we weren't supposed to keep a dime of the increase, that 100% of the increase was to be given to the church, to the poor, to the needy, that God was calling us to be creative with our finances, creative with the ways that we give away, would we be equally ecstatic, knowing that none of it was gonna be for us anyways? I mean, after all, aren't we commanded to care about our brother and to love our neighbor as ourself. Like theoretically, we should be just as excited about increase if we didn't get to keep any of it. But I don't know about you, I wouldn't be. And that's a problem. That's a problem. Like we have to confront the way that greed, particularly as it's immersed into our minds from culture, has worked on us to assume that first blessings are for us. And then with what we deem extra, it's for other people. So what happens here? (laughs) Jesus reminds the man that his grasping for control only goes so far. and It doesn't go very far at all because he dies that night. So, so often our greed is meant to secure our future, to secure a future for ourselves. And Jesus makes the point here very clear. Your wanting to secure the future has cost you your future. And now he loses everything. The guy who came into the story rich, he came into the story with full barns, now dies. And Jesus asked the question, now who receives all of this grain that most likely, I mean, it's a parable, so it's not a true story anyways, but now who, restore, who, who receives all of this grain that could have been used to touch so many people's lives? Now it's going to rot in these barns. Next passage, I'm going to breeze through this one as well. The rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. These are our final two passages before we come to the table. And these two passages, a lot of scholars spend time comparing and contrasting. Because we have two stories where people come to Jesus and they're both, they're both the, the rich young ruler 
is specifically interested in how do I inherit eternal life? And then we have Zacchaeus, who's curious who Jesus is. And the story is very clear to make mention that they both were wealthy, but they come at their wealth with two completely different perspectives. So uh, we're going to read this, and then we're going to come to the table after I do a little bit of preaching on these verses. Luke 18, we're going to start in verse 18. And yeah, a certain ruler asked him of Jesus, of course, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. It's like, okay, this had nothing to do with what I was asking you, Jesus. He's so good at that, right? He's so good at just throwing the questioner into a frenzy. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, the rich young ruler said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Notice the word lack. This is interesting. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. He had lack because he had everything. And one of the things that we can assume about this individual is that in that time period, in Jewish culture living in the Greco-Roman world, there was this idea that they assumed still that the Messiah was coming and he was going to come with material prosperity. So there was this assumption that the wealthy, if anyone could be saved, that wealth wasn't a hindrance to salvation, but that wealth was a stamp of God's favor and a stamp of God's approval on their lives. So th- that's why he, he leaves and he's, he's confused because he thinks of anything, God gave me this money because of my righteousness. And if anyone should be saved, it's me. And Jesus calls him to sell it, to give it away, and then to follow him. That, he, that salvation Jesus recognizes in that moment that salvation is not found in selling and giving, but salvation for this man can only be found on the other side of his being done away with the thing that was the obstacle in his life. So this isn't something where every one of us in all circumstances has to do this, but there are people who their wealth will keep them from finding salvation. And Jesus would call to them, How much are you willing to give up? How much are we willing to give up? And then there's the story of Zacchaeus, where Zacchaeus is wanting to see Jesus. He's a wee little man. I sing Zacchaeus to my two-year-old all the time. He's a wee little man. So he climbs up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And then Jesus passes by, right? And Jesus calls him down and Jesus creates his own dinner invitation. And then what happens? Zacchaeus, when he encounters Christ, in the midst of knowing that his wealth came to him dishonestly, he encounters Christ and immediately he knows he has to give it away. He has to give it away. Why? Because Jesus demands of him that all things be revalued. And I would say that Jesus demands that of us, that when we come into the presence of Jesus, that there is a revision, a re uh, what, what word did I have here? That there, the word is a re, 
Redefining, thank you, my wife. Oh, it's on the screen. <laughs> well, just, hey. In my defense, that screen was green just a second ago. It was green. That, that when we encounter Christ, we should redefine all of the things that we have previously assigned value to. Happiness, our neighbors, our enemies, storing up treasures on this earth. I mean, there are all kinds of things that get redefined and re-envisioned in our coming to Christ. So I wanna compare and contrast and then we're gonna come to the table here. Zacchaeus humbles himself. There's a passage just two chapters before, I believe, where Jesus says, those who are humbled will be exalted and those who are exalted will be humbled. So Zacchaeus humbles himself and is exalted by Jesus, but the rich young ruler exalts himself and assumes that his wealth is a reward for his diligence to the law, and he leaves humbled. He leaves confused, and he has to ponder the situation. Salvation cannot be earned. It comes by grace alone, not by anything we have ever done. I want to be very clear that our helping people does not earn our salvation. And Jesus certainly doesn't teach that. But for some of us, our wealth might stand in the way of us truly following Jesus. And he would call us, how much are you willing to give? So what can we learn from these passages? One, following Jesus requires a radical redefining of the way that we value our wealth and possessions. For the Samaritan, it was to go out of his way to help his neighbor in need. For the Pharisees, give what God asks, yes, but also use your resources for mercy and justice. For the rich young ruler, sell all you have and give it to the poor. For Zacchaeus, give restitution from your wealth to those around you. Following Jesus requires redefining the the value of wealth and possessions. Number two, hold all material possessions loosely with open hands. Salvation comes to our heart. What we do with our money reveals what we truly believe about Jesus and about the nature of our salvation. Number three, being wealthy is not a sign of God's favor and being poor is not the sign of our irresponsibility. The narrative that we attach to money so often shapes what we do with it. That the rich young ruler assumed that God had given him money and wealth as a sign of his favor for his righteousness. And if that's the case, why would he give it away? God gave it to me. But if we assume that money is a resource for us to help the people around us to encounter Christ and to have communion with Christ, then we treat money differently. How we view money matters so much in this life. Number four, greed is opposed to the gospel because it assumes that all resources are primarily for us to make our lives better, easier, and more secure. Greed assumes that the resources around us are for our lives to be better, easier, and more secure. And then number five, money and possessions are God's to be stewarded in ways that facilitate communion with God and others. I'd like to invite our communion attendants to come, and Aaron, if you would come and uh, play keys for me. As we come to this table, this holy, sacred communion table, one of the things that we should recognize among all the other narratives 
that are attached to the sacrament of Holy Communion is that everything from God is pure gift. That God has no need, that with God there is no transaction. That forgiveness and grace and the gift of the Spirit, the gift of the church, the gift of the body and the blood of Christ, they are all gift. And they are all gift to people like you and me who are undeserving. And I think that this is one of the ways we have to understand also our spiritual wealth. That it is gift and it is gift for us to be used, yes, for our benefit, but also for the benefit of the people, particularly the needy around us. We give back to God what we have already received first from him. So in the tradition of the church, God causes the wheat to grow, that no man, even the best farmers in the world, cannot make a harvest for themselves. So man receives the harvest from God, but man puts his hands to the work of making bread and puts his hands to the work of making juice or making wine with the grapes. And then it comes to this table and we pray that the spirit makes this the efficacious for us, makes it the body and the blood of Jesus for us. So when we come to this table, we are inherently recognizing that every gift that we give God was first something we received from God already that everything we could ever give was first flowing from his abundant generosity. So church, I'd like you to stand this morning. Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com.